Preaching of God's Word, then, is found in the book of James, chapter 3, as we return to verse 17. We'll have this and two more from this verse. But we look again at biblical wisdom, particularly, as James calls it, that which descendeth from above. So he's contrasted what is worldly wisdom. And now he has set before us various properties of divinely provided wisdom. And this is important for us to remember as we've tried to emphasize that the wisdom we concern ourselves with this evening and have been considering is a wisdom that we cannot naturally obtain. It is rather something that though there are means that the Lord has provided, we are beholden to God to provide it to us. And part of the purpose of our considering these things is to see to the extent of that we can the beauty of wisdom. When we truly see biblical wisdom, divinely sent wisdom, heaven sent wisdom, we see something that is truly glorious. We also can learn something of what we lack, which instead of that overwhelming us and casting us down, though it humbles us, It brings us then to that beautiful posture of prayer. Lord, give more of this wisdom. So with these things in mind, here then, verse 17, James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Now, this evening we wish to look at this expression that the wisdom which that is from above is full of mercy and good fruits. There is a need for cleverness to arrange one's life to one's personal advantage. And we look at that and see that in the world, and we are struck at times at the insight and the knowledge, and perhaps we could even say skill, that men have given themselves to cultivate, that they could figure things out to their great earthly advantage. There are men who are worth studying to see how diligent they were, though they pursued wrong ends, that they stand something similar to some of the parables and as, as an example of diligence for us. But whatever it is that they have, when it is ordered for their own personal gain, it is not true wisdom. You can see, for instance, in the time of what was known as the robber barons in our own history, though there were eventually, and some who are so styled robber barons were very philanthropic and caring of others, yet the majority are known to have given very little concern for the oppressed that they themselves were guilty of oppressing, though they were knowledgeable and though they certainly made of themselves not only some name and even generational wealth that continues in some instances to this day, though it was founded in the 1800s, Yet we can hardly apply to them this description of wisdom because, as you'll see, wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. 
It's not fixated upon my gain. It's fixed upon another's good. This doesn't mean that one can't be rich and wealthy without true biblical wisdom, but it is to challenge the mindset of the world today, which sets before us the thought of my goal in life is to get what I can get. Because what often happens then is people are looked upon as stepping stones to gain it. This doesn't have to be the case, and we know of examples where it's not the case that people have done well, as we say in this world, and yet have been very generous toward others. But notice here in the text that wisdom from God is here said to be full of mercy and good fruits. This is a challenging expression because it's not just saying that it shows. It says that it's full of it. The word full is used in John's Gospel, chapter 21, to describe Peter's net, which was full of great fishes. Right, And so the picture there in John 21 is this net which is nigh unto breaking, such had it reached its extreme limit. Now notice, heavenly wisdom is said to be equally full. It's filled up. But what is it full of? Well, here it says, mercy. Mercy is that compassionate disposition and display toward others in their brokenness and miseries. It's something we'll see, of course. You see, you could do a little search in the Bible and you could type in on a computer, Jesus and mercy, and in verses that they come together, uh, it's often in a, a crying out to Jesus, Jesus, have mercy upon me. Why is the one crying out for mercy? But that they're broken. They feel something of their misery. What mercy is, is something that's been simplified in our day to think merely of it as the withholding of something that we deserve. Uh, So justice isn't being shown, so mercy is shown. So you think of these pleas that sometimes appear, appear in novels and other such things. Someone is on the brink of being put to death, and they say, mercy, have mercy. And the idea is, though I deserve at your hand to die, yet relent and don't proceed. But biblically, mercy, though it can include that, is much more robust. It has this notion, think of the Good Samaritan as we call him, who sees the one broken and is moved toward the one broken to help and relieve that brokenness. And then you'll notice it's not only full of mercy, but a related and intimately so idea, it's likewise full of good fruits. The word fruits is literally able to be applied to things Uh, that we eat, grown from trees, and so on. But biblically, it's often spoken of as of a spiritual thing, that which comes from something else. Of course, a fruit tree isn't fruit. It produces fruit. The fruit is the evidence that the tree is healthy and the tree is active in bringing forth that which we so delight in when we're able to eat it. Well, similarly, spiritually... There is the display of what's within us. And here, wisdom is full not just in the intellectual discerning of things, 
but it's displayed in the good things that it does. So you can see the idea of fruit when Jesus mentions, for instance, in John chapter 15, that we are to abide in him. Why? Well, he's the vine, he's the source. And as he is the source, what happens? As we abide in him, verse 5 of that chapter, then it is that the same bringeth forth much fruit. So what's the evidence of union and communion with Christ? It's fruit in our lives. It's not feelings, though there are feelings that accompany our abiding in Christ. It's the display of good fruit. Well, similarly, wisdom will display itself in good fruit. Now, these things are together, full of mercy and good fruits. The idea is the compassion that is felt when wisdom is active leads to activity that seeks to relieve the misery. In other words, biblical wisdom directs us in compassion and service to others. Now, this is important for a number of reasons. It's a biblical theme, again and again appearing. We saw it in Exodus. You can see it throughout the Pentateuch. We see it in the book of Proverbs, the caring for the poor, the impoverished, those who are broken, and other such things. You see it in the commandments that Christ gives. We see it, of course, in Romans 13 with the commandment of love. We see it in the person of Christ as he's showing mercy. But brethren, you'll notice as well that it stands as contrary to the false and worldly wisdom. Verse 14, Bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, lie not against the truth. This wisdom is not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. Elsewhere we're told, that we, verse 2 of chapter 4, love, kill, and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Notice this idea of lust. Lust has been often in our thoughts today sexualized only, but that's not the biblical notion of lust. It includes that, it can. But biblically, lust is fundamentally wayward desire wayward desire for anything that is sinful. But you'll notice, ye lust and have not. You want and you don't have. It leads you then to kill. You desire to have and cannot obtain. So what happens? You fight and war. Yet ye have not, because ye ask not. And then you ask, you say, okay, I figure out the riddle. Instead of trying to get it by my force, I'm just going to ask to get it. But here's the problem. You ask and receive not. Because ye ask amiss. Well, what's the motive? Ye may consume it upon your lusts. You see, what's going on is James is throughout this book contrasting what Paul elsewhere calls the uh, uh, fruit of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. James doesn't use that same language, but you see it again and again. There is a worldly and carnal wisdom which displays itself in strife and self-centeredness and focus and fixation upon ourselves and temporal gain and temporal pleasures and temporal advance. And there is a heavenly wisdom which is focused first and foremost on God. Remember, the wisdom that is from above is first pure. It's holy. It's oriented toward and it's pursuing God. But among its other properties is this. 
It's full of mercy or full of compassion and good fruits. That means it's others-oriented. It's focused on serving others. So we wish to consider this in two ways this evening. Firstly, looking at wisdom's concern for others. And secondly, looking at wisdom's service to others. Wisdom's concern and wisdom's service to others. Now, wisdom is a spiritual virtue which engages our understanding. But as we've considered already, we don't need to labor much on this, it leads to practice. It guides us in our way of living. So in other words, though true wisdom will include knowledge, it is knowledge employed unto the activity of our lives, our life way, our way of life, our living, and so on. And so this is why James is regularly putting forth these ideas about what wisdom is and does. It's peaceable. In other words, wisdom leads us to be peaceful toward others. It's gentle and easy being treated. Well, here, notice it's full of mercy. Well, one thing this means is that wisdom discerns the miseries of others. If it's full of mercy, which will lead to good fruits, it is necessary that true biblical wisdom so orients our ability to discern the brokenness and miseries of others. In other words, think of Christ. We're told that Christ is such a high priest. He has our own nature he himself was tempted in all points like unto us, yet he did, was tempted yet without sin, so that he cannot be touched, untouched by the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, what is being said in Hebrews is he senses, he feels, he knows our miseries. He knows our brokenness. He knows our sorrows. You said, well, well, how is it he knows that? Well, that's the point of the Incarnation. He himself suffered. He knew the difficulties of being deprived of physical things, of emotional things, of relational things. He knew the temptations that you and I face. And we delight in that knowledge that we don't have to cover our misery and brokenness, but we can actually make it known to him and appeal to him for mercy. Well, here we see that wisdom, when we possess it by God's grace, is something that orients us to consider the struggles, the brokenness, the miseries of others. Mercy fundamentally answers misery. You can see this. We mentioned Christ and the calls to him for mercy. You can see this in Matthew chapter 9 and at verse 27. If ever there was one wise, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, he is perfectly so. In Matthew chapter 9, notice at verse 27, when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Now, what's their misery? Well, at the very surface level, it's blindness. Blind. Now, Blindness would be a difficulty in our day. In this day, it was exponentially worse to be blind. It was so that 
There were few, if any, resources for blind people. They were forced to live upon the kindness of others. And so when Christ is approached by them, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy upon us, and he's healed, he heals them, it's a tender expression of his discerning their need. Now, we see something more as well, of course. The miracle is more than just a merciful venture of Christ. It's also a display of his miraculous power, which was to be the sign of being the Messiah, right? The blind receive their sight. Remember when John sends his disciples and say, tell us, are you the Christ? Or wait we for another. Christ doesn't say, oh yeah, go back and tell John I am. He heals some. He gives sight to the blind. He performs other miracles. And he says, go tell John what you've seen. Why is that relevant? It's relevant because the prophecies of the Christ were, he, the anointed one, would come, give sight to the blind, raise the dead, etc. And so Christ is saying, look, this is what I've done. However, we miss something if we think merely that Christ is just sort of going about through the motions doing these things. Christ truly discerns brokenness and answers it. You can see this as well in Luke chapter 10, not of Christ, but of the passage or the story that he gives of the Samaritan. And so there's a scandal to the Pharisees in this because the Samaritan was not only sort of the half Breed, but the Samaritan was the corrupter of worship. So you'll remember that the Samaritans had compromised the worship of God, and so they were instances of not only half-breeds, humanly speaking, derogatorily applied to them, but they were also despised of God's law. But notice in Luke chapter 10, you see what Christ presents to us. He sets before this man who says, you know, listen, what must I do? What shall I do? Verse 25, to inherit eternal life. He points him to the law. And verse 29, the man asks, and who is my neighbor? Christ gives the parable, you know, the good Samaritan. But notice what's described of this Samaritan. Verse 33 and following, It says, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, that is, the man who had fallen among the robbers and was beaten and so on. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. But what did the compassion do? The compassion led him, so he went to him and bound up his wounds, poured an oil and wine and so on. And it goes through, and Christ then asks the man, verse 36, which now of these three? Thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he, that is the man that asked Christ, says, He that showed mercy on him. Do you see the point? It's not just the sympathetic feeling. You know, there are times where you see advertisements and it shows, you know, an orphan. And we get touched by that, right? We sort of get moved by that, as we say. But really, all that we mean is, we're saddened by that. We're sort of pricked within ourselves by it. But true movement of soul would lead us to do something. We can't really say, I was moved by that, unless we were moved unto something by that. Here, the Samaritan in Christ's story doesn't just see 
the brokenness of this man, he doesn't just sort of say, yep, I, I had mercy in my heart. He goes to him, and as this man later says, he showed mercy on him. So here's the point. Wisdom discerns the brokenness and then applies itself to helping the brokenness. It discovers as well, though, true misery. This is important in our own day. So there are hosts of even godless organizations, and some which are frankly blasphemous uh, apostate churches that have all sorts of outreaches to the oppressed. Now, we ought to be reproved by their example because they have no true gospel and they go out trying to uh, serve those who are hungry and naked and destitute. There was a time when the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ led the world in merciful care of those who were unwell and sick and broken and other such things. Hospitals, historically, you'll know this, preeminently were the product of the church caring for those who were unwell. Now, there's something, though, that we need to answer. There is a movement among evangelical Christianity that says, well, the liberals got it right, and we need to be all about that kind of care. Well, we need to acknowledge we need to be physically serving those who are broken. But wisdom does something more than care for the outward estate. It's intriguing, isn't it, that true wisdom discovers the source of misery. So in other words, you'll see this actually in Christ's own ministry. So Nicodemus comes to Christ by night, right? And there's something of fear perhaps, but there's also the culture of the Pharisees and others who would dedicate their evening hours to the study of God's Word. So perhaps there's something of saying, listen, this is important. Whatever the case, Nicodemus comes to Jesus And in John chapter 3, you can tell that Nicodemus is seeking out something. And so he says in verse 2, we know, notice even a term of reverence, rabbi, teacher, master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. In some sense, Nicodemus is commending Jesus. He's saying, we, we're on to you. We see it. We can discern what's going on. But Jesus discerns something in wisdom that is far more important than whatever Nicodemus is pursuing. He doesn't sit down and say, Nicodemus, well done. You're right. You know, you're correct. I, a teacher, come from God. He says, Nicodemus, I see something in you that you don't see in yourself. And so he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Imagine this for a moment, if you will. A Mormon comes to your door, and you either have mistake or purpose, open the door and start to engage with the Mormon. And the Mormon, after discussing with you, says, You know what? You've got a point. The Trinity seems to be biblically at least viable, I'll have to think about this. We would have a cause, most certainly, to say, well, that's good. We would have a cause at that moment to say, thank God that at least something's making sense. 
But if we're truly wise, we would see that except this Mormon is converted and brought to faith, he has no hope. And so this is what's going on. Jesus doesn't rest in this uh, acknowledgement and say, hey, you're sort of on the path and you're coming along. He wisely discovers the deeper problem facing Nicodemus. You need to be born again. Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law. You know many things. It ought to astound you that you don't know about regeneration. Here's a problem to you. He does this again in John chapter 8. Do you remember the scene? Here come the Jews, some who are professing faith and so forth. And he says, if you continue in my word, then are you truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And there are some that say, what are you talking about? We're not born of illicit ways. You know, we're we're rightly born. We have a mother and father. You know, we're not, um, you know, bastards and other such things. We're not slaves. We're free. And Christ is opening to their understanding something that they don't understand themselves. He says, the one who commits sin is the slave of sin. What's Christ doing? He's displaying wisdom. He says, you don't understand your true misery. He does it again with the woman at the well. You remember, here she comes. He says, give me something to drink. She starts wanting to talk about you know, the Jews and Samaritans. And she wants to talk about where should we worship. And what does Christ say? He points out to her her misery, illustrated through the many husbands she's had, and likewise confirmed by her not trusting in the Messiah. And as he opens this misery to her, he's not doing so to poke and prod and to leave, as it were, in pain. He's doing so to relieve the misery. He's showing mercy by discovering it. So you can think of it this way. Physically, you go to a doctor and say, you know, I've read all the WebMD stuff. I've done all the research. People love to say that today. I've researched all this problem. What they've done is they've looked at a handful of you know, websites. They've looked at various things. They've talked to one or two people, and now they're equal to the doctor for all the doctor's years of studies. All the same, they come and they say, I've done all this research. I'm convinced. Here's the problem. And the doctor starts to do all these things, and the patient is like, I don't understand what you're doing. But then all of a sudden, the doctor comes and says, listen, I know why you thought it was this, but the symptoms are actually leading to a far worse thought. We need to run some tests. Why? Well, because if my suspicions are right, you have what could lead to a disease unto death. See, the point is, the discovering of something that's difficult when done with care is the most merciful thing that can be done. So in other words, when we think about these ministries, as they're sometimes called, to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, we ought to say to ourselves, what they're doing in and of itself is better than what we're not doing. But the answer is not for us then to just launch all sorts of ministries and focus merely on those things. The answer is that wisdom would be careful to answer the outward and temporal miseries while also being sure to open the real misery, which is sin and the need for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
wisdom discovers true misery and not with a purpose to, as it were, leave one in their pain, but rather to relieve them of that pain. This is what Christ is doing throughout his ministry. He's answering temporal concerns, temporal difficulties, but he's also opening the more real, pressing, and spiritually weighty, everlasting misery. For what purpose? Because he's concerned for them, that they would see their great need. So here's a question for us to consider. Am I one, maybe we have to start with this question, am I one who at all discerns the miseries of others? Do I see it? Do I discover it? Even of a temporal sort? And am I then moved to relieve it? Because that's what wisdom does. It moves to relieve it. But then we can start to ask the question, am I one who discerns and discovers the true misery of men? We have perhaps loved ones. We have neighbors and co-workers and others in our lives. We have seasons of our life where we can talk with those who are strangers to us. What does a wise person do? It's interesting, Proverbs tell us this, that the one who uh, uh, wins souls is wise. There's a need to be wise, which will only be wise as the Lord gives it to us. But one aspect of the wisdom will be that we'll see the need that souls have for salvation. But more than just asking, do I have this kind of display of concern for others and their miseries, both temporal and eternal, am I full of mercy? Because wisdom, you see, is full of it. We think of Charles Spurgeon, whatever theological differences we have, we agree that he was a very gifted and gracious minister. And yet we ought also to see he was a merciful man. He was on the front lines, as it were, to serve various orphans and poor ones throughout the districts of London, organizing and praying and laboring and spending and being spent for the cause of these things. That's an image for us to see what wisdom looks like. Faithful steadfastness to the Word of God, the proclamation of the truth as it is in Christ Jesus, and the outward addressing of the miseries. That's wisdom, and that is what we would desire from the Lord. But notice this leads us then secondly to wisdom's service for others. Wisdom which is from above, is full of mercy and good fruits. Notice carefully, it doesn't just say it's full of fruit, but good fruit. This is important because wisdom doesn't just go out and do. It doesn't just say, well, there's a need. Let me throw myself at it and let me do whatever I can. The first thing to note is if our fruit, if our service, if our actions toward those in misery is to be good, Firstly, our service must be honorable to God. In other words, we can say it this way. Compassion toward others never violates God's law. Wisdom is first pure. So there's this idea, you can see it today, you know, you know if Christians loved me, they would accept me for who I am. Well, it's often expressed by those who are 
in all forms of wickedness. Well, there's mercy, compassion toward the misery, but my mercy is toward your true misery. And this is because of a first and foremost commitment to the Lord, the Lord who defines what is good, the Lord who is good. And so I'm not going to go about and do that which perhaps you want me to do because you think this is what you need when what you want me to do violate God's law. Because if I'm doing that, even if it sort of comforts you or makes you feel good about yourself, it is not full of good fruit. For to be full of good fruit, it must meet that simple qualification of being good. And the only way something is good is if it conforms to the standard that God has established in his word. James has made much of this in uh, this epistle already. We saw this in one sense when he says, the royal law, chapter 2, verse 8, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he talks about sin, and he quotes from the commandments, uh, do not commit adultery, do not kill, if thou commit no adultery, if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. What's he getting at? Love must be defined in accordance to God's law. The law defines the expression of love. This is what Paul will say in Romans 13, you know, that love is the fulfilling of the law. This is not a lesser path to honoring God's law. In other words, it's not like you have this option, here's the law and here's the path of love. And if you do love, well, you sort of fulfill the law in some weird way. No, it's when we love, when we are filled with true, earnest, ardent, holy, godly, merciful, gracious love, it will run the track, run the course, ride on the rails of God's law. And so you can think of it quite simply. You know, James uses two commandments, commit, adult, commit no adultery, uh, do not kill. Well, if I love somebody, I'm not going to murder them. If I love my brother, I'm not going to commit adultery with his wife. If I love my sister, I'm not going to commit adultery with her, right? I mean, this is making sense to us. The point is, when we have love, it will show itself in obedience to God's law. When we're thinking about what wisdom is, if we say or think in ourselves, well, that was wise, and it's somehow condoning disobedience to God's word, we've stated a contradiction. There's no wisdom in contradicting God's law. It's only foolishness. It doesn't matter what it makes people feel, think, or do. If it is that our service, if we can call it that, toward others, violates God's law, it's not wisdom. Wisdom is concerned first, as James has stated, with purity, with holiness. But brethren, this leads us to note that this is not something of an either-or. It's not either we're going to be zealous for God and holy, or we're going to be compassionate toward others and serve them. It is first pure, but notice it gets to the property of being full of mercy and good fruits. Who in this world was more zealous for God's law than the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is no one. 
It's His law. One of the wonders of the Incarnation is that the lawgiver submitted himself to become under the law. Well, he loves the law. He delighted in the law of God after the inward man with perfection. His words, his actions, all that he did was full of love. And yet, as you survey his ministry, he's full of mercy and good fruit to those around him. None of them deserved it. None of them merited it. But because of his heavenly wisdom, because of his holiness, he was given to serving others, going about doing good. Now, if this is going to be true for us, it must be done by the heavenly wisdom that leads us to serve others as serving Christ. It's amazing, isn't it, that when Paul addresses marriage, he says to wives, wives, submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. So he's orienting wife submission by keeping Christ first. And likewise, husbands, love your own wives as Christ loved the church. And so again, he's orienting husbands to this. But this is true of every godly action and service to others. Notice in Matthew chapter 25 at verse 34, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Now what's intriguing is, and it goes on naked and so on, that this is descriptive, notice this language, of those who are on His right hand. Now, who are on His right hand? Notice in verse 32, Before Him shall be gathered all nations. He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on His right hand. So His people, His elect ones, His saved ones, are now separated from the rest of the world. And He says in total statement to those on His right, to all of His sheep, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me, and so on. One thing this tells us is that God's people are oriented toward mercy to others. But what Christ is saying is that in doing so, it's being done to Him. And in cultivating this in us, He's actually teaching us to see it this way. Because, you know, he says, they'll ask and say, when did we see you in this way? And the king shall answer them in verse 40, I say unto you, inasmuch as you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Now, he's teaching us as much as he's informing us of what's to come. He's teaching us to see these activities as being done for him. Even the least of His people as we serve them. This is why He says elsewhere, a cup of cold water given in My name will not be, gone, uh, will not be uh, uh, forgotten. His point is wisdom discerns this. That as I go about my ordinary life and I'm seeing a need here and I give myself to it, wit wisely I realize I'm serving the Lord. You know, there's this thought that often 
creeps into our lives of, I've got to go do something that's extraordinary. I've got to go do something that outdoes everyone else. And yet notice Christ is talking about simple things that often in this world go unnoticed, that get few, if any, uh, uh, notes in this world. Feeding those who are hungry and so on. It's done as unto the Lord, but it's done unto men. This is important. In other words, true piety is not secret only. There's a hidden part of piety. We don't go around boasting about my prayer life and my intimacy with the Lord and so on, but true piety will show itself in our service to others, which true wisdom will do. True wisdom will lead us to discern the needs, discern the miseries, and in accordance to God's honor and law, go forth and serve others to their relief. Now, brethren, this, of course, touches on the whole of wisdom. Wisdom itself is full of mercy and good fruits. Well, as we think on this, here's something for us to discern. The contrast between true and false wisdom. Perhaps we can say it this way. There's no greed in wisdom. Wisdom doesn't say, well, what am I going to get out of it? Wisdom isn't calculating and saying, what's the benefit that's going to return to me? Wisdom is looking and saying, I wish to employ all that I am for the service of others who stand in misery, whether temporally or eternally. And so wisdom seeks not its own, but as love, it seeks another's good. Indeed, wisdom is the outworking and the ordering of love. You can think of love as affection, which uh, orders, as it were, our movement in action. But wisdom we can think of as that which governs the ordering of love. So as we're thinking about, well, I'm full of love, the world talks about that, I love. Well, what do you mean? I have feelings. Well, love is more than a feeling. Wisdom directs that and says, how am I going to order this affection, first to the glory of God, and secondly to the benefit of my neighbor? Now, why would we do that? We do that because that's what God does. Now, there's not a perfect likeness because God is infinite and without body and parts and so on. But you think of it this way. Christ, out of love, saw us in our brokenness and He pursued us and He did so in a way that answers our greatest misery. Well, did He do so sort of carelessly? No. Did He do so without forethought? No. Did he do so, you know, uh, in a way that's foolish? No, he did so in the greatest wisdom. In fact, the cross is called the wisdom of God. For in the cross, we see righteousness and mercy embracing one another. It is the wisest display of wisdom the world will ever see. The world looks at the cross and says it's foolishness. It might have sort of a sentimental idea but really, there's nothing that enamors me with it or draws me to it and so on. But the believer says, here's my problem, here's my misery, my sin. Here's another problem, God's holy. And here's what we're saying, I do not know how to resolve this. 
God steps in, as it were, and says, I do. How is he able to do that? Because he's infinitely wise. And his wisdom is ordered toward his people to the relief of their misery. So that though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God, by his grace, through the work of Christ, has brought us to life and unto salvation. So if we want to grow in this display of wisdom, which is full of mercy and good fruit, we need to start by thinking upon God himself. And in fact, this is a common theme. If we want to grow in wisdom in all of its properties, think of God. God is most pure. In all that he does, he's never tainted. He's never in any way sort of diseased by sin and so forth. He's always pure. And likewise, our wisdom can be uh, or ought to be the same. Well, God is full of mercy, and surely we would acknowledge good fruit toward us. And likewise, then, is our display of wisdom to be full of the same. Well, brethren, as we close then, there's a question that you and I should consider, and that's, is there this display? You know, I think of myself as growing in the knowledge of God, and I hope I would say it's the wisdom of God. Well, is there the growth of the display of mercy and good fruit to others? Because if there's not the growth of that, whatever else we're growing in, we can't say we're growing in wisdom. Wisdom's growth will grow in its display of mercy and good fruit to others. Well, here's something else as well. Where we've seen that growth, not just as the world cultivates sentimental help for the outward concerns, but a true, pure, holy growth of wisdom, caring for others, and so on. We can give thanks to God because this wisdom comes from above. When we're unwilling to compromise holiness, and yet, in that unwillingness to compromise holiness, we are unwilling to be kept from showing mercy, and mercy and holiness are bound together, we say, here's the gift of God displayed. God is at work in me, helping me to maintain His holy law while I go about serving to the relief of others in their misery. And chiefly, will it not be that as we're touched by the brokenness of men's bodies, we'll likewise be moved by the ruin of their souls to tell them of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, if we're to grow more in this, it will only be as the Lord gives it. So let us be much in asking God to give us wisdom, which, among other things, is full of mercy and good fruit. Would you stand with me for prayer?